koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, ngā mihi nui kia koutou, cool to be here, um, saw the tramping mob just all roll in before, um, good, good effort, straight from the tramp to here, that's impressive, glad we're social distanced. Um, <laughs> um, um, yeah, cool to um, have a, that was like such a long setup to a eh, for like such a poor gag. Um, but um, hey, few like little things to um, bring your attention to um, as um, uh, we get started tonight. Um, is this clicker going to work? What do you reckon, Flora? Or have I not got it turned on? No, it's on. It's green. Oh, here we go. Okay, so um, we are, for the first time um, this year, rather than doing two camps, we're going to do a one-day conference, one of them. And um, the cool thing we're going to do, we're hoping over the next few years, is move this conference around different communities in our wider and new network. So it will kind of feel like you're hosting the Olympics, you know, every four years or something like that. Um, and um, so Brooklyn is hosting uh, this year on May the 1st. It's going to be really awesome. Um, we're going to eat together a lot. We're going to have a huge breakfast fry up and then a huge lunch, and then a huge dinner. Um, in fact, we're going to do one more meal than we're going to do worship and teaching, um, which kind of shows the priority of the event is um, just um, us just eating a lot together. We're also going to serve in our local neighbourhood, so you've got a little QR code up there where you can register. Otherwise, that's on the Renew page and probably getting shared shortly on the Blueprint page if it hasn't been already. Um, so encourage you to come along to that um, if money is a a problem, just let us know because we'd rather have you there than not. Um, the thing is with this is that um, only 100 people can come as, we, as we're aware of right now um, and there are like probably like 80 of you in this community and then there's like 30 at Brooklyn and probably like another 30 at Lyle Bay and then there's heaps of people at the free store. So if you want to come along, you probably need to jump in on that like quite soon um, and we'd love to have everyone there. Um, yeah, and then just a couple of other things. Um, we uh, up at Brooklyn have started running a monthly lecture series out of our space at Two Todman. Um, this Tuesday at 7pm, um, we have got uh, Dr. Jonathan Boston, um, who's a real legend around climate change stuff, and he's going to be sharing for one hour from 7 to 8 this Tuesday. We have about five or six spots left on that with COVID stuff, but would love to have a few folks along. So if um, you are passionate about that, um, or you're not passionate and you'd like to learn, um, Rose, what do you think of Jonathan? He's good, eh? Yeah, yeah, cool. Hoping for a little more enthusiasm, but there's a head nod there. Yep, he's a good guy. Um, so, um, yeah, um, if you're keen to come along, we'd love to see you there to join us for the first of our lecture series. And then the final thing I just wanted to say um, from Rose talking about uh, uh, pancakes for dinner slash uh, Shrove Tuesday, um, Ash Wednesday, is like Lent is like my favourite season of the church calendar um, because it is so tactile. Like, there are just all these beautiful ways to engage with the story of Christ going to the cross and to make that a story of our death and rebirth as well. Um, so, you know, we have this thing where we come together. Like, I think the history of Shrove Tuesday was basically like getting rid of all your fancy ingredients before you go into the Lenten season. Um, and so you have this moment of eating together, but then we wear this, like, ash on our forehead and the, the blessing that a priest prays on you um, is you are but dust, and to dust you shall return, repent and believe the gospel. Um, and a few years ago, I got to do that um, outside the train station here in Wellington. Uh, we did about three years in a row. And as people come out, um, they could receive this mark. And so many people who had no practiced faith anymore, 
suddenly reconnected at this moment and wanted to be blessed. Um, but then you have these beautiful seasons, uh, beautiful services through Lent, um, like Maundy Thursday, um, where um, the whole church starts like lit by candles, but gradually they extinguish more and more of them until you journey into the darkness of Christ's death. So there's all this like metaphor and symbolism and ways to like embody and not just hear about your faith. Um, and uh, it's probably only two or three years ago that I really started to get serious about the Lent journey, like serious beyond giving up chocolate, you know, <laughs> like to actually go journey towards the cross with Jesus. Um, and, um, and if you do that journey, you get to like Easter weekend and you are so dying for Jesus to rise again. And when like it comes to that Sunday morning and, and you know, and someone says, he is risen, and you just, you want to scream back, he is risen indeed, because you feel like you've dwelled in these 40 days of his sacrifice and his journey, and it can be incredibly powerful. Um, so um, all of that to hold that out to you is like a thing that's gone on for like almost a couple of thousand years in the church um, of us deeply doing Jesus' journey with him to the cross and making that more than giving up chocolate. I think Rose said last week that, you know, making that an act of worship or making that about worship just want to hold that out to you as an opportunity for us to arrive at Easter Sunday desperate for Christ's resurrection because we want that we want that true as a thing that once happened, but we want it true now in our own lives and in the lives of the people we love and care about. Rant end. Um, so I um, want to start with a reading today. I'm going to hold this out and pretend it's working, and Flora, you're just going to... Oh, no, there should have been a scripture before that, I think. Oh, no, before that. that no, no, that's the end. There we go. All right, here we go. This could be a ride. Um, can I ask, um, Craig, are you too busy to do the reading? <laughs> awesome. Um, so good. Um, oh, it needs to be someone with a mic. Okay, um, Hannah, would you do the reading? I can just hold this to you. Um, there you go. Luke chapter 8 verse 22 to 25. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out and they sailed. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. Awesome. Thanks, Hannah. So this is probably a really familiar gospel narrative to a lot of people here. Um, and, um, and the way I want to look at this today is I want to look at some of the themes and the language that are used in this passage and what we might draw from those. So now you can go to that next slide, Flora, which is the kind of triangular one. No, uh, that one. There we go. Great. Um, and so the things I want to look at today is three types of power going on in this passage. The power of the storm, the power of the disciples, and the power of Christ is kind of the way we anchor this. Um, and Flora, could I have you go to the image with the, or just the image, the photo? 
So this is a photo I took about five or six years ago um, at Galilee where this is happening. Um, and so this is like standing at the shore looking out over Lake Galilee. And the reason I wanted to show this, this picture is I don't know if you're like me, but before I went there, my assumption was that Israel was always super hot and super dry everywhere, that it was basically just this big blazing desert. Um, but actually like going here, it was like super windy and like quite cold, um, and um, I just um, was thinking about this because it's kind of looking at this picture and I see these grey clouds kind of brooding um, over Lake Galilee, um, and it, it really helps me to think about this passage of this idea of them being out on this body of water, and just to have that in the background um, so that we know where we're talking about um, when we look at this. Um, and um, natural forces in the scripture um, are often this metaphor for untamable things. Natural forces in the scriptures are often a metaphor for untamable things. Um, we think of the flood of Noah in Genesis 6. We might think of the waters of the Nile um, with the Exodus in Exodus 14 that sweep over the Egyptian armies. Um, I love this from um, Psalm 42.7, which Lauren wrote in one of our songs, your breakers and your billows have washed over me. Um, the ocean is often this picture um, of power um, and of the storm as the thing we can't possibly control. In the scriptures, a storm is something we are completely at the mercy of. In the scriptures, a storm is something that we are completely at the mercy of. Um, and storms are, are these situations where we are rendered powerless. Um, and some of our metaphors in scripture I think we struggle to relate to today. Um, say, for example, if we talk about light in the scriptures, um, when, when light was talked about in the times that the scriptures were written, people were thinking of that when it went dark, it went dark. And maybe you lit a candle and you had a little light, but it was the only light. Um, these days, kind of the light metaphor, I feel we lose a little bit because we can kind of just illuminate whatever we want, whenever we want, like night and day, kind of less of a thing to us. Um, but actually, the metaphor of storms is kind of like actually become like more pertinent to us now, I think in the time of climate change, where we are feeling at the mercy of these natural forces um, that um, just seem to sweep through in an increasingly unpredictable way. Um, and so the idea, this metaphor of the storm is this untamable, unpredictable power actually, I think, still really works for us. Um, the metaphor of the storm in Scripture, it doesn't really speak to sin. Um, sin, I think, in terms of the struggle, struggles and suffering, which might be from bad decisions, from indecision, or from our own brokenness. Um, but the storm is something quite different. It's when we're at the mercy of things bigger than ourselves, at the mercy of things which we didn't have a say over. Um, so in this moment, like, we are at the mercy of COVID. And nobody chose COVID. <laughs> Like, nobody chose this moment we're in. Nobody chose for us to have to talk about this every day for three years. Nobody chose um, for us to go through this. Um, but also, like, we all have that person in our lives who we deeply love, um, but suddenly has a cancer diagnosis or a health thing that comes through. And we're just completely at the mercy of that. It happens to us sometimes. There is no choice around that. That's not about sin. You know, the disciples asked, was it his father's sin or was it someone else's? Jesus said, it's not like that. The storms are these places where the stuff comes and we actually didn't get a say in it. Things like earthquakes, things like sometimes deep betrayals that people experience, which they actually had no power over, but just the sin in another human puts them at the mercy of things they never chose. So that's the picture of the storm is the suffering you didn't choose. 
the thing that just comes upon you and you are like, I am just completely at the mercy of this thing. Um, uh, Dr. Bock, who um, wrote the commentary I looked at, he said, the point of the storm is helplessness. Events in our lives sometimes leave us feeling at risk, whether it be a job situation that calls us to take a stand, in the severe illness of a loved one, in an unexpected tragedy or the breakdown of a relationship. So the storm is the place of powerlessness, it's the place of helplessness, it's the place of doubt and fear. And I think one of the biggest things the Western church struggles with is that we don't realize, we have forgotten that this is 101 to being a Christian. We think when the storm comes, when the experience of powerlessness or helplessness comes, we sometimes ask the question, what have I done wrong to offend God? (laughs) Or I thought, Jesus, if I followed you, that therefore things would be easy, that I would be protected by all of it. But like all of humanity, when the storms come, we find ourselves in the same senses of helplessness and desperation and of struggle. And I think sometimes we forget that the defining moment of our faith was when the one who was meant to save us was nailed to a cross and died. And I like what N.T. Wright says about that. He says, the people who stood there, no one thought it was the beginning of something. Everybody thought it was an ending. You know, we look at the cross, and because we have, we see it um, retrospectively, we go, yeah, it's good, because in the end, Jesus overcame death. For the people who stood there, they thought it was the very end. They had pinned their whole hope on it, and something that was outside of their control, um, this, this um, massive military empirical machine had come through and destroyed the one they loved, loved, who they believed would liberate them, and they are left in the midst of a storm. Our defining moment, the cross, is when we thought all hope was lost. And the early church was not born into comfort, but into persecution. And those of us in this room probably live in the least persecuted experience of Christianity in history. Like we are probably the safest we have ever been to be Christian, despite what some of our brothers and sisters would say at Parliament. We have a truckload of freedom <laughs> to be Christians. Like we are in a really good spot. And so there are ways where our following Jesus is a little bit distorted because we read Scripture, which was meant for persecuted and oppressed people, and apply it to lives that are actually very privileged and very powerful. And so sometimes we end up distorting that, much like the religious right have in the States, into believing that we are persecuted when we can't do or say whatever we want whenever we want. Um, And so we don't really, many of us do not know persecution, and we have forgotten that most of the New Testament was not written from pulpits, but was written from prison cells. Most of the New Testament was not written to be said here, it was written in prison cells, and like maybe lamplight, and people who didn't know if they'd ever be free or be executed the next day. And so the experience of powerlessness, helplessness, doubt, the experience of the storm is meant to be a really normal part of the Christian experience. And I think, um, I think back to, there's a, a guy, M. Scott Peck, who wrote this book called The Road Less Travelled. And he talked about one of the biggest problems um, that we have in Western society at the moment is that when we suffer, we then suffer another level by believing there's something wrong with suffering. Am I making sense there? We suffer twice because not only do we suffer with the genuine thing that is happening to us, but then we think there is something wrong that we're suffering to begin with. And we live, and so we, we double suffer over again by blaming ourselves or blaming others for the fact that life is hard. And life just is hard. Christians do not get a pass on that. And we will all in time encounter powerlessness, we will all encounter helplessness, and we will all encounter 
doubt. And so that is what the storm is. The storm is the place of helplessness, the things that we did not ask to happen to us, that we did not preempt, that aren't our fault, and yet they are here. And here in this moment of COVID-19 and climate change, it's pretty true to us. And so that is the power of the storm. The storm is the place of our powerlessness. But secondly, we have within this the power of the disciples. And there's a great irony to this passage um, because they're out on this boat and the storm comes up and Jesus is sleeping and the disciples all run to Jesus to sort out the situation. But what is the occupation of most of the disciples? Fishermen. (laughs) They are storm professionals. (laughs) They have definitely been in more storms than Jesus has been in in their lives. And Jesus, the religious teacher, the rabbi is sitting up there, and in the moment where the storm comes, they don't go back to the knowledge that they've had of what it's like to be in a storm, of which I'm sure they had been in countless ones, but they run to the religious teacher. It reminds me of hearing the story a few years ago about a, um, a parish in downtown London. Um, and there was a priest who ran that parish, and halfway through the service, someone had a heart attack and began to fall on the ground in the aisle. There were a whole bunch of doctors and nurses in this parish. Not one of them attended to the guy. All of them waited for the priest to do something. So bizarre. And I remember hearing the story because I think what, with what they were getting at telling the story um, is the way that we've centralised our... our um, our hope too much around one person in the church. But I think this kind of like actually really nailed it for me as a similar kind of a situation where the storm is coming in. We have countless fishermen, we have storm experts, and then where do we go? We go to the rabbi sitting up the back. It kind of reminds me like at the moment, um, Alex who works with me, for some reason thinks that I'm a handyman, which I'm very much not. <laughs> like she's decided that I am like able to fix most things. So she'll just be like, Oh, yes, Scotty, the, um, the door is swelling. Um, someone needs to just take it off its hinges, just plane off the bottom of it, um, probably bog it and reseal it. Um, you've got that, eh? No. <laughs> she is coming to the religious teacher in the moment where I am the last person she needs. Um, and, um, and I just think this is a really, really interesting moment um, because these disciples in this moment, they've been in storms before, probably more storms than Jesus, and even in this storm, the expertise doesn't quite seem to cut it. Another thing that's interesting here um, is, again, we tend to read the Gospels um, knowing the whole story. But what's happening in the book of Luke is a gradual unraveling of who Christ is, a gradual revealing of who he is. So at this point in the story, the disciples have seen a couple of healings happen, but they have absolutely no reason to believe that Jesus can control the wind and the elements. So it's unlikely that they are approaching Jesus at this moment, expecting him to stop the storm They are just in rabid fear, (laughs) and they just run to the nearest guy who prays and say, please, can you find a way to sort this out? The point I want to get at here is that in the journey of following Jesus, there are storms where your own expertise will be deliberately overwhelmed. What I mean by that is when the psychologist loses grip on their own mental well-being, when the nurse or doctor is given an inoperable diagnosis, when the pastor or the priest can barely hold on to their own faith for the pain they're in. Those very people who are meant to be the expert, who are meant to know what's happening here, when it comes to the storm, when it comes to the experience of helplessness and powerlessness, are often overwhelmed by that thing. 
this seems to actually not only be a thing that happens, but it seems to be a favorite of how Jesus transforms people. Um, I've been reading a bit about Nicodemus recently. You know, John 3, Nicodemus, the religious teacher who knows everything, comes to Jesus and asks him, how might I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And he says, I don't know how to do that. And then he tells this parable. He says, well, you know the law, but the wind goes from where it wants to and, and where it will go. And essentially says to him, your expertise cannot carry you into this new rebirth, which I am leading you into at the moment. The expert is stumped. We have this interesting moment just before this. This passage is in Luke 8. In Luke 7, there is the centurion who comes to Jesus. The centurion um, commands an army of 100 top crack Roman officials, Roman guards. And he comes to a situation where there is a servant that he loves in his household. And that servant is going to die. And so the centurion, with all his power, with all his expertise, with all he can muster, realizes that all his military knowledge will not serve him for the servant he loves. And so he comes to the feet of Jesus and asks him, can you bring healing to the servant of mine? And this is what he says. He says, this is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this man who is so powerful and says, I can tell anyone to do anything and they will do it, has to reckon with his own powerlessness and that all the ladders he's climbed in society, all the power he has will not be enough for the storm that he is facing in this moment. This man who is so powerful must reckon with his complete powerlessness and so he submits to the power of Christ in that moment. So the first thing, the storm is the place of powerlessness, but the secondly, the storm is the place where our expertise will not cut it anymore. So we've had the power of the storm, the power of the disciples, and we now turn to the power of Christ. We know um, in this story that Jesus then stands and he does calm the storm. But the more important thing that happens here, rather than the storm ending, is that these disciples get a new revelation of just how powerful and unique Jesus is. Suddenly they realize that this God is on a whole nother level to what they thought before. They receive a new revelation of how amazing he is. He is more unique, more powerful, and more capable than they believed. In their desperation, where their own expertise is overwhelmed, they find out they had a better God than they ever thought they did. Where their expertise was overwhelmed, they find out they had a better God than they ever thought they did. St. Hedwig says this, How much better is the God we have than the God we think we have? How much better is the God we have than the God we think we have? And all of us believe in a worse God and a less gracious God than the gracious, loving, and powerful God that we actually have. All of us believe in a less good God than the God we actually had. And it is in this place of the storm where the disciples, through their absolute powerlessness, realize that the God they have is way better than the God they thought they did. Um, Bock, again, Dr. Bock, great name, um, says this. He says, the disciples needed to be made aware their teacher had authority that extended into the operation of the cosmos. Like they knew that Jesus could lay hands and heal some people. But all of a sudden in this moment, they realize, wait a second. He actually controls the weather. 
and the skies and the seas. Like, man, this is way more powerful than we thought. He goes on, the sovereignty of Jesus makes him far more than a prophet or an ethicist, far more than just an example. Confessing Jesus as Lord means that he is in control of nature with all its power. In our world where nature is often personified as its own cosmic force with an independent identity, the reminder who really is the force behind behind creation is powerful and important. Um, I've shared this story with um, some of you, but uh, many of you will know that the, the last couple of years have been a, a really, um, really turbulent road for me. And, um, and a part of that was um, around uh, separating with my partner about the same time as my daughter arrived, who's now 18 months old. Um, and a few months before this, I remember um, being up north camping, and I was in my tent late at night, and for three nights in a row, I felt God invite me um, to go walking on the beach. There's in, in um, Waikowo Bay, up uh, at the top of the Coromandel, this enormous beach with these massive mountains behind it, and the cloud kind of cloaks the mountains. And I'd go out there each night, and there was this huge moon in the sky, which would just illuminate right across the water and across the beach. And each night I went out there, I felt the Spirit say, I'm going to teach you to walk by moonlight. I'm going to teach you to walk by moonlight. I'm going to teach you to walk by moonlight. And I remember at the time thinking, I don't want to walk by moonlight. <laughs> I, I want to walk by daylight. I want to, I, want to, I want to walk like the Esme parts of this world walk, you know, like where it's just like banger after banger in their headphones as they like pump down the street, you know, like I don't want to like, you know, I want to walk with the enthusiasm of Zoe Glentworth when she gets up in the morning. It's like, let's do it, world, you know, <laughs> like that's... That's, that's the way I want to live, but yet God is saying here, is saying, you will walk by moonlight, you will learn to walk by moonlight, you will learn to walk by moonlight. A few months later, during our first lockdown, I used to go each day up to the War Memorial in Brooklyn and pray up there, and um, it's this beautiful view that looks down over the city. And um, I do centering prayer up there, which is where you sit for 20 minutes in silence um, and um, come back to a word or a picture in your mind over and over again of who God is. Um, and, uh, and as I was up there, I was really grieving that I could see things were going really badly in my life. Um, and just as uh, in the last few seconds of that time of prayer, um, I felt God remind me, I said, I'm going to teach you how to walk by moonlight. And I opened my eyes and I just saw this massive full moon in the sky. Um, I got home that night and uh, I opened this Maya Angelou biography um, and um, I've been reading through hers over the last few years. She has like nine of them. And the first line in it was, don't the moon look lonesome walking through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome walking through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome when your baby get up to leave? I was just like, this metaphor is deep, eh? Um, saw this the next day. We went for a scan. Um, sent the scan off to a few friends. A friend of ours who was um, not a not a Christian, came back immediately, said, whoa, what an amazing scan. There's a full moon in your scan. And we look at it, and there's this outline of the moon in the scan. We're like, man, this is just, just crazy. As things kind of continued to, um, to, um, to really unravel, um, I can remember this one night where I was driving, and the song from um, our wedding that um, my partner walked into came on the radio. And I um, felt this tightening in my chest. Um, it felt like pins and needles. And I'd, I'd, I'd never had a panic attack, so I didn't actually know what this was. But just like um, started to hyperventilate, pulled over on the side of the road. 
and was just sort of slumped on the side of my car um, and um, just just weeping and um, look up into the sky and I see this beautiful full moon and I just felt this peace wash over me um, and just felt this like peace of God come in the middle of the storm. And um, I don't mean to tell that, I don't, I don't tell that um, to glorify suffering because anyone who is in it, there is nothing good about it when you're in it. <laughs> like no one should ever pursue suffering. Some of you like who feel like you've had a, a fairly easy life are thinking, yeah, I need to have some real suffering in my life. No, if you can get through, great. <laughs> if you can get through unscathed, awesome. Um, you know, but um, the reason I tell that um, is that the revelation of that time um, was God saying to me that there is no darkness in this world where I have not hidden my light. There is no darkness in this world where I have not hidden my light. Um, I think of that psalm, if I go up to the heights, you are there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. You know, if you drill right to the center of this earth, there's a burning fire. There's a light at the core of this dark earth. If you go way out into space, there are suns and stars. There is nowhere in all creation where God has not hidden his light for those who walk in darkness. Say that again for those who, who are struggling. There is nowhere in this universe where God, no dark place where God has not hidden his light for those who are suffering. There is not God's light. Um, God's light endures. And I remember there being different situations as things got worse and worse where I would think there is no way God can be in this darkness. There is no way God can be in this darkness. And again, I would find God dwelling there again. Reason I tell that is in this, this storm and my incapability, I actually got a better God than I thought I had. That actually, like, I did not believe God could dwell in those kinds of places, but in the storm and the powerlessness and the helplessness and the doubt and the pain and the feeling there could be no resolution in the pitch black dark was revealed to me a Jesus who was more powerful than I thought he was because he could dwell in places I never thought God would dwell. And that is the power of the storm, is this place which overwhelms our expertise, overwhelms our experience, and we say, why has this happened to me? We feel utter powerlessness, utter despair, but if we will call on Jesus, we also get this opportunity for God to show that he is better than we ever thought he was, that, that she is better than we ever thought she was. Am I making sense? We have this amazing um, lady um, who comes to our Brooklyn church, um, Gronya, and she is an incredible, her name's Irish, um, and um, hence Gronya, um, and um, she, um, she's an incredible swimmer, she swims every day, um, but she actually swam the English Channel, like back in the day, um, and she's um, also swum uh, the Cook Strait, like she's just this incredible swimmer, just like goes hard. Um, and um, I was talking to her one day um, about, um, we were just talking about like all the different hazards of doing swims that long, and we were talking about riptides. Um, and um, I'm not a good swimmer, but one of the things I found really interesting from this um, is we were talking about the, the natural fear that overcomes you when you're in a rip, that you just want to fight this thing. And she said, the way you overcome a rip, who knows, how do you overcome a rip? Go with it. You go with it. Like it's counterintuitive. In the midst of being dragged somewhere you do not want to go, all you want to do is fight it. And actually the way you overcome that thing is to let it carry you until you can safely 
return to shore. It's totally counterintuitive. And I think this is the same with our experience of the storm in our faith, that everything within us in those moments of, um, of utter chaos just wants to fight anything to make it better. Like, I can't blame anyone who makes really bad decisions for their life in the experience of suffering just trying to grab hold of something that makes sense because that's what we all do, you know? We, we, we feel like we just want to fight it. We want to counter the loneliness within ourselves by finding anyone, you know? We want to stop the feelings of despair and depression by drinking whatever we need to. I get it. That is human. I think God gets that. All that stuff is so human, and all of that is trying to fight back to shore in ways that will never get us there, eh? All of it is. It makes so much human sense, but none of us gets it back there. But what we need to do in these moments is the counterintuitive thing, which is say, Lord, I'm in the storm. My expertise is overwhelmed. Lord, I will go out with you wherever you carry me. I will go out with you into this place where I do not want to go any deeper, but I will go out with you. This is the crazy Christian response to the storm when we talk about being radical or countercultural as people who will actually feel the pain, who will actually drift out with it and actually allow God to reveal herself as better than we ever thought she was. This could maybe be our response to COVID. It's maybe, it's maybe less of us fighting to be productive when we feel so unproductive but to let our unproductivity carry us out to a better God than we thought we had. So I want to finish um, this with a, um, a little poem slash liturgy I, I put together for this. Um, and so, um, I, um, Flora, that's the one we haven't shown so far. But actually, maybe I'll ask you to close your eyes. Why don't you close your eyes and I'll read this. And you can, you can sit with me with this as a kind of a prayer if you'd like. Christ, carry me out. When my legs and arms are tired, when I can't swim any longer, Christ, carry me out. Christ, carry me out. Where my feet can't touch the bottom, where I can see land no longer, Christ, carry me out. Christ, carry me out. Where I yield to your tide, where I surrender to your will. Christ, carry me out. Christ, carry me out. For those you carry out, you are faithful to bring home again. Christ, carry me out. Lord, for those of us who find ourselves in experiences of storms at the moment, whether they feel like, like little storms or whether they feel so overwhelming that they could destroy us, God, we know you are in the midst of these. Um, we know that you are in the boat waiting to reveal a better God than we ever believed you could be. And so, Jesus, I pray for um, those in this room who um, find themselves in the midst of that storm, that your Holy Spirit would come to them now, that you would comfort them, that you would reveal a deeper grace than they believed there could be, um, that you would reveal they are more worthy than they ever thought they were, um, that, um, that they are more loved than they ever thought they could be, God, um, that you are more powerful um, and that you're, there is nowhere in the world, nowhere in the universe where you have not hidden your light for those who suffer and for those who struggle in the storm. Lord, for those of us who um, want to know how to walk alongside those friends of ours who suffer and struggle, Lord, we pray for your grace and your patience on our lives. 
um, Lord, we pray for um, your perseverance and your courage in our hearts to journey with those in these storms and the helplessness and the powerlessness um, and to sit um, genuinely and authentically in those places. Um, Jesus, we pray that these words tonight would help us to live more faithful as your people in this season of COVID-19, in this season of climate change, in this season of war and so many things which make so little sense to us. Um, Jesus, we yield our hearts. We place them before you again and we say, come Lord Jesus and show us what it is to go with your rip current and so to be brought home by you and not by our own desires or our own lusts. In your name we pray. Amen.